Welcome back to the LED Project Podcast. Uh, this is Kyle Krieger. This is episode 44 of the show, and we are lucky enough to be joined this afternoon by Liz Kleinrock. Liz, how are you? I'm good. Thank you, Kyle. How are you doing? I'm doing excellent. I, I got to say, um, like a week ago in Wisconsin, there was a foot of snow on the ground, and, and now it's all gone, so I, I'm, really, I'm really doing well now that all the snow is finally <laughs> gone. Wow, since being in LA, I think I've almost forgotten what snow is like. I'm very jealous. <laughs> Are, did you grow up in a place that had snow? I did. I grew up in Washington, D.C., and then I moved to St. Louis um, before coming out to California. So I have lived in cold places. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know they get snow in D.C. Do they get a lot of snow in St. Louis? Um. You know, St. Louis weather is interesting. You could have, you know, it's 70 degree day one day and snowing the next and then a tornado the next day. So it just keeps you on your yeah. toes a lot. Yeah. One of my, uh, one of my best buddies lived in St. Louis for a few years while he was going to college and he used to just say that it was, uh, it was pretty crazy. So, so yeah, like I said, we really appreciate you taking some time. I'm looking forward to it. Um, uh, you know, just following you from, you know, what, what you're talking about presenting at, at South by Southwest and, and just what you put on Instagram. I'm, I'm super excited to have a conversation with you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Awesome. All right. So, so our first question that we always ask everyone uh, is just, could you tell us about your favorite teacher and why that person was your favorite teacher? This question is so hard to answer. <laughs> um, I think in grade school, School. My favorite teachers, I had co-teachers um, throughout elementary school. Um, I loved my second grade teachers, Miss Kolsky and Miss Gershowitz. They were just the epitome of love. Like I remember we would do morning journal prompts and they would always write back. And it was just really nice to know that like you were heard and um, they asked questions. And I always really looked forward to going to school in second grade. Um, as a teenager, my favorite teacher was actually a photography teacher who I had, um, and I, I think was going through like an angsty preteen phase, but I really felt like he was one of the first teachers I had who saw me as I was and didn't try to change me or give me like cliched advice. He just let me be who I was, and he um, just became like an outlet where I could talk about the things that I was going through. Um, and he really helped me work through a lot. And I still very much appreciate him to this day. I've been very lucky to have very like phenomenal teachers throughout my entire life. It's hard to pick favorites. <laughs> yeah. I've, you know, everybody we ask that too. I mean, there's, everybody's always got a bunch and you, everybody usually does that. They pick one from, from the early grades and, and one, uh, and later on years. Uh, so yeah, that's a, that's a great answer. So did you go to public school in DC? No, I actually went to the same private prep school from pre-kindergarten all the way to 12th grade. Wow. What was that experience yeah. like? Um, it was great. I loved elementary school. I think middle school is hard no matter where you are. Um, high school was incredibly challenging. I don't think I've ever worked as hard as I did in school. Um, even like in my master's program, I've never been that stressed out in my life. Um, but I think it very much prepared me for work and balancing doing your work and having fun. And it made me a really good writer. And so I very much appreciate it. Um, I do think in some aspects it was pretty sheltered. Um, you know, it was a pretty liberal, small private school where there are only 114 of us. 
in my graduating class. So luckily we all got along together pretty well. And the core group of my friends are still from childhood and we're, they're lovely people and we're still very close to this day. Um, I would, don't know if I would say it was the most reflective of, you know, our society and what's going on in it, but it was a very pleasant experience while I was there. Yeah, that's that's so funny that you say that, you know, because I, I grew up small town, Wisconsin, and I, I graduated with 107. And that was the biggest class our high schools ever had. Wow. And, <laughs> you know, and, and the funny thing for me is I look and, and I teach at a high school uh, about an hour from where I grew up. And, and, you know, these kids are, are kind of stressed to the max. And I'm like, I don't remember high school being that stressing. And I, you know, high school for me was, I, I don't want to say easy, but I really didn't have to, it, I really didn't have to, or didn't challenge myself during that time. And it, it caught up with me when I went to college and I was, you know, on my own for the first time. And, you know, the, my, my freshman year GPA didn't, didn't really reflect how intelligent I was as a person. So I learned I learned the hard way that you gotta you gotta put the work in, but it took me till college to really learn that. Mm-hmm. So, all right, moving on. Um, so we le- we love to ask my my partner Wilk and I are both very into superheroes. So we love to ask if if you were a superhero as a teacher or had a superpower, what would that be? Oh man. Probably somewhere along the lines of the Flash and Quicksilver, just so I could be in like so many different places in such a short period of time. Um, time is always the greatest constraint when you're in the classroom. So if I could move a little faster, that would be awesome. Yeah, and then and then make all of all of the computers and the copy machines and all of those things work faster too would be. That's a good one. I had I had not thought of the Flash or Quicksilver. Those are both really good. So, all right. Um, so from from your perspective, what would you say the the state of education in the, in America is right now? Um, I would say that the state of education today is inconsistent. Um, you know, I work at a charter school, and even within the charter community, there's so much inconsistency. Some charters are very well regarded, some are extremely corrupt, um, some I think do a really huge disservice to students. And I think it's unfortunate that if you were asked to summarize the state of education today, you couldn't really come up with a cohesive statement about it, depending on the state, depending on the district, depending on independent or charter or traditional public school. Everything is different. It makes me think that we have kind of lost sight of the overall objective of what education is and what it's going towards in our country, because if we're all working towards different things and there can be no cohesion. Yeah. Um, And maybe, I don't know how much experience you have with, you know, public schools. Do you think that the public school system is, is kind of a reflection of that same, like you said, with charter school where, where that's inconsistent as well? I do. I um, started teaching actually in Oakland Unified um, back when I graduated from uh, Washington University in St. Louis. I spent two years in Oakland Unified um, through AmeriCorps and then did a year in my student teaching placement in LAUSD. So I have definitely had that experience. And I have worked at three different traditional um, public schools and they're all very different. I think you know, it depends on leadership and it depends on the type of school culture that leadership is trying to cultivate. 
Um, in some of the schools, the teachers were very close um, and you could tell they collaborated a lot. And in some, it was very much close the door, handle your own business. And when testing season comes around, you're kind of at each other's throats because there's that air of competitiveness. You know, you're not working together, you're working against each other. Um, but I think it just depends on the school climate that w- where you're teaching. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it's been a jump. Like I said, I grew up small town Wisconsin, you know, like I think there was maybe I think there was one African American student in high school my entire time and maybe a handful of Hispanic kids. Otherwise, you know, we're you know, we're all just kind of country white kids and, you know, my college was, you know, n- more diverse than my high school, but my first job was in, you know, downtown Houston where, you know, we had the population was at the school I was at 90% Hispanic and then like 9% African American. And just, you know, the, the inconsistency I saw there between my experience as a student and then, you know, my experience as an educator, you know, like you said, I, I think the climate and the culture that's created is, is really important because I worked under a couple, uh, under a principal who had a really great climate. And then, you know, the, that principal retired and a new principal came in and, and like you said, it kind of turned into what you said to where it was kind of everybody fending for themselves and it was more competitive than cooperative. So I definitely agree that, you know, with what you're saying that it's inconsistent all over the place. And, and I just look at places like, you know, West Virginia and Kentucky and Oklahoma and Arizona who are, Mm -hmm. you know, in a situation where they had to walk, walk off the job. And I was just so shocked that, you know, nothing really moved in Oklahoma after whatever it was, 10 or 11 days that they walked out. I was I was really saddened by that. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot to say, you know, get up on a podium when you're running for office and say that you value education in our country, but, you know, actions speak louder than words. You know, saying it is one thing and then actually investing the money and the time into developing it is something very different. Absolutely. Absolutely. So kind of along that same vein, do you have a an educational philosophy or, you know, kind of a statement that you strive to achieve with your kids? Um, I would say my philosophy of education is largely sociocultural based. So really trying to see students holistically um, and take in everything they're bringing into the classroom um, and make a really big effort to get to know my students as individuals and really understand what are their likes and dislikes and what their family like and, you know, how do they feel about school? Um, and for students who maybe are a little lukewarm about school and they maybe haven't had the greatest opportunities past, I want the year they have with me to be the year where they learn to love school and they learn to love learning and just being here and being part of a community. Um, I really try to use an asset-based lens with my kids and really focus on the things that they can do and what they bring to the table because it seems like in school these days, we label students based on what they're not capable of doing. Um, and we see things that are actually really powerful and, um, you know, very positive labeled as things that are somehow a deficit, um, like considering students who are emerging bilingual as English language learners, as if there's something wrong with that, or the way that we refer to our students who have special needs. You know, they all have amazing gifts and bring so much to the classroom, but I don't think we spend enough time really focusing and cultivating those aspects of their personalities and identities. 
Yeah. Wow. That's, I mean, that's a really good statement. And, and, you know, that's something I learned and it took me a while to learn, you know, what my students, especially in Houston, you know, what their life was like. Cause I, when I moved to Houston from Wisconsin, I, I had no idea that that world existed. Like I, I know I had heard that there were poor areas and stuff like that, but you know, when you have an eighth grader who's responsible for feeding and making sure his five siblings do their homework before he does anything else, like you just, you just have a real appreciation that, you know, like you said, not, not every kid views education the same and, and can prioritize that the same way. And that was, that was a lesson that I really needed to learn when I moved down there. I, I, I don't I don't think I had the right perspective before that. Yeah, it's always a great like it's a very humbling experience to have to recognize that you have to unlearn things even as a teacher. Um and sometimes when you work with students, you know, ways that you fail, you know, it's really easy to blame them, but it's often the reflection on you and you know, you have to go back to the drawing board sometimes and figure out what's working and what's not working and is there a way that I could approach this student differently? Um, and you know, those times are, are really hard for teachers. I think we don't want to admit where we're failing. Nobody really likes to. Um, but I think in also developing relationships with students, teachers also need, are also required to, um, give a certain level of vulnerability. Like if we expect our students to come in and share these things with us, then we need to be willing to share parts of our personalities and lives with them. And I think it really humanizes teachers um, in the eyes of our students. And it's really important for them to see us as people too. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, so many of the conversations we've had on, on the podcast and with different educate, educators, you know, I was never taught when I was in college that being authentic and being vulnerable was important, but every teacher we've talked to has stressed like how important it is to, to show up and be vulnerable and, and to, to be real with the kids. And, and that really facilitates that relationship building and that relationship development. So, you know, just kind of off of that, you know, what are some of the ways or, you know, some of the examples of, of how you really try to show up for your kids authentically and, and with vulnerability? Um, I invite my parents in to visit, actually, when my parents who still live in D.C., whenever they're in town, they come in and they do a read aloud to my class. And it's really important that my students get to know my family because I get to know their family so closely. Um, I always try to explain to my students if I have an expectation of them, why I have that expectation in place. You know, it's not just this top down, very authoritative, like you do what I say because you know, I'm the grown up and you're the kid. Like it's, it shouldn't be like that. Like when um, I start the school year with my kids, what we keep coming back to are these concepts of trust and respect. And you can't have a relationship without those two pillars. But I also need to show up and display those things every day as well. And sometimes they result in really, you know, funny revelations. Like I got into a miniature power struggle with a student who was like, why can't I chew gum in class? I'm not bothering anybody. I'm not sticking it anywhere. And I said, you know what? You're right. <laughs> like this is a waste of energy on my part. As long as you continue to not stick it anywhere or bother anyone with it, that's fine. You know, and try to also mirror some expectations that we hold students to that completely disappear when you become an adult. You know, I think like when 
teachers will often brag, oh, when you come into my classroom, it's completely silent. But does everyone actually learn best like that way? Can you actually communicate and collaborate with others if it's if it has to be quiet all the time? It doesn't. Um, I try to share stories of my childhood and mistakes I've made. I want them to know that I make mistakes all the time um, and to be very real with them about those things. And on some occasions, I've to like totally cried in front of my kids too, which can be awkward, but I think sometimes can um, strengthen your relationships because you're willing to show that side of yourself in front of them. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. What, what grade are you teaching right now? I currently teach fourth grade, but I have taught first through fifth over the last few years. Nice. Yeah. I teach, I teach 10, 11 and 12th graders in an, in an alternative setting. So I have uh, 25 or 26 or 26 at risk kids. But then I also, you know, interact with the general populace and, you know, the chewing gum example for, for us is, is the cell phone, you know, mm -hmm. the, the principals have stated, you know, they have to put them away. They can't have them out in class, but like, I, I that's the world they live in. Like I, you know, most of the kids are not doing anything wrong on their phone a few times when they have it out, especially like I have a study hall. And they're saying, you know, the kids have to sit silently without any of their friends and they can't be on their phone and they can't have their earbuds in. And I just, I, I, I didn't agree with that. And then finally the principal was like, if they're not doing that, you need to give them detention. And I just, you know, that was probably three weeks ago and I haven't given any of them detention because I don't, I don't think that's right. Like they've been at it for five straight hours if they need some time to to talk with their friends and kind of hang out and, and, and lay low for a little bit, that's fine. And the kids who need to do their work when they're in study hall do their work. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't, like you said, it to their point, it, it doesn't usually bother anybody. It's not like they're doing terrible things on the cell phone. So, so no, that's, that's a good point you bring up there. So, um, you know, kind of trying to move on, keep it going here. What are you most passionate about right now? Um, at the moment, I am very into, um, teacher professional development and trying to conduct sessions both at my school and in the outside educational community to show teachers and administrators and school leaders how necessary, um, but also how approachable social justice and anti-bias education can be, um, I've been very lucky and have been accepted to a number of conferences um, in the past few months where I've been able to share a lot of the work that my students have done. Um, and I'm trying to equip teachers with tools and strategies and resources to show that, you know, you don't have to be um, an expert in this work. And frankly, I don't think I'm at that place yet. Like I read a lot of it and I practice a lot of it, but I recognize that I still have a very long way to go. It's a spectrum after all. Um, but that there are ways to incorporate social justice concepts into your classroom just based on, you know, the text that you choose and the topics you give your students to write about. There are really simple ways to do it. It doesn't have to feel like taking on this whole new endeavor. Um, and so that part of like coaching and mentoring has been something that I've been very dedicated with lately. Okay. So I, I was on your website and, and reading through some of your stuff. So what is, for those who might not know, including me, like, what do you mean by anti-bias education? What is what does that term mean? Sure, I think you can break it down into different ways. Like we, I think many people can accept that you know we all have biases, 
some of them we are very aware of and some of them are implicit, but these biases very much and like impact the way that we view ourselves and the way we view others and the way we interact with each other. So when I talk about teaching students with an anti-bias lens, it's really like developing muscle memory um, to look at situations and read the world with a critical eye where you can start to notice um, situations of injustice or inequality um, and to be very aware of them. And once you recognize them, how can you use your power or privilege and leverage it in order to help elevate other people who might not have that same power or voice? Um, so at an elementary age, it's a lot of identity development because I deeply, deeply believe that like happy, confident people do not end up being like internet trolls or racists or bigots. You know, like if you grow up understanding this is who I am and I'm confident in who I am, I can also understand that someone else's differences don't threaten my identity. And I think that's a missing piece a lot if you like turn on the news or read the message board on any news article these days. Um, people view differences as threatening to who they are and their sense of self. And I don't think it needs to be that way. So if you start to um, show students um, at a very young age, like these are different types of differences. Even the person sitting next to you in class is different from you in different ways. Um, that it starts to build healthy respect. And from respect, you can get perspective taking and empathy. Um, so these are all just different building blocks. And I really consider the elementary years such a crucial foundational time period for them to really ask questions and explore. Um, so that way, when they go and, you know, enter the world and navigate it with more ease. Yeah, you know, and, and I really love what you said about, you know, <laughs> Happy, I don't know exactly where Jews, but you know, happy people don't turn into internet trolls. And my partner Wilkie and I have been talking a lot about, you know, and, and we said it this way, you know, a person who genuinely values themselves, like feels an intrinsic value in who they are as a person. I've never met a person like that, that ever had to take the value from someone else that ever had to, you know, really cut someone down. And, and like you said, um, it can turn into things that are, you know, not necessarily what you want to be in their more adult years. I, I, I think that's really crucial. So what are, what are some of the activities you do with your elementary kids specifically that, you know, lend them to having a, a greater perspective on the differences that people have? Um, we start the year by, by doing a lot of work, just bringing ourselves into the classroom. Like I have my kids bring photos of themselves and their families and books that they love. And we create these identity maps that are constantly evolving throughout the year because I really want the students to also share how they see themselves. Um, you know, I might keep activities or assignments very open-ended so the way they want to interpret it can really uh, differ and they can just be far more reflective of who they are as people and how they think of themselves. Um, in the past, I've done things like I am from poems and when I taught lower grades, like bio bags where they bring in objects that like represent who they are as people. Um, this year in fourth grade, we've spent a lot of time talking about what diversity actually means. I work actually at a diverse by design school. So we intentionally recruit students from lots of different backgrounds and communities. So we have about 50% of our students qualify for free and reduced lunch. We have a large population of students of color with lots of different backgrounds, students who speak many different languages that really represent the diversity of Los Angeles. Um, 
But oftentimes when I use the word diversity, it's like this really nice, positive, abstract term. And we'll really get down and get gritty about what are actually the challenges of diversity. Like we have really great things like Korean street tacos, like when people of different backgrounds get together, like great things happen. But what are also some of the challenges of being with people who have different cultures and different beliefs? And when all those people come together, what happens? So that way we can also equip ourselves in the future. If you're with somebody who isn't like you, what are some strategies and ways you can approach their difference from a positive place and work with them rather than against them? Yeah. Oh my goodness. I mean, that's, that sounds, that sounds amazing. I, I never, I didn't know that there were schools that, you know, they intentionally strive for diversity. That's, I think that's a really incredible concept. And now granted it's, it's not applicable everywhere, but in a place like Los Angeles, I mean, it's, it's a really good thing to do. Yeah, they definitely create really powerful learning experiences for all of the students because it's so much more authentic when it comes from a peer rather than just reading a book or an article about someone who's different. You know, if that person is actually speaking from their own life and perspective, um, that's far more powerful, you know, than just something anecdotal. Right. So, so take the incident, whatever it was last week or maybe a little more than a week ago in Philadelphia when the the two guys that were sitting in a Starbucks were arrested. Um, Did you, did you use that or, or how would you use a situation like that to, (laughs) to teach anti-bias? Um, so my, like earlier in the era, my class goes over a lot of social justice terminology because we use these words throughout the year. I also have a handful of students um, who are emerging bilinguals and different languages. So I want to make sure that when I say words like bias, or inclusion or privilege that we all understand what that means. Um, and so if I were to te- like or talk or teach about that with my students, um, I would probably give them the news article and just have them read it objectively, state like what are the actual facts, what are the things that people said without um, you know trying to get into their opinion about what happened. Um, and then just based on very objectively what they see, try to apply some of the concepts we know about. Like, do we see issues of bias here or discrimination? If so, like, what evidence can you pull out that this um, that you have from the text that we're reading? Um, and also have them connected to things that we've talked about in the past, like Black Lives Matter, um, you know, and racial profiling and things like that. And even though my students are very young, I think people often forget that kids are exposed to the exact same thing as adults are. But oftentimes we just assume they're not listening because we consider certain topics like grown-up issues. But kids hear everything. They experience everything. And I think it does them a huge disservice when we pretend that they go through the world blissfully ignorant. They're not. Um, And also just give them some opportunities to ask questions about why they think some of these things happen. Um, You know, but we also try to be very solutions oriented. So like, what are some things that, you know, the police department in Philadelphia or Starbucks as a company could do um, in order to show that they've learned from this and they're willing to grow in the right direction? Yeah, I mean, that's just a just a a crazy scenario and situation, but. You know, a lot of what I read and some people I talked to, especially, you know, my friends that are in Houston, they were just like, a lot of people said that they were impressed with the way the two African-American guys handled it. You know, they peacefully, like, got up and walked out and and didn't do that. So that was, you know, at least a good sign. And, 
you know, they, I was really yeah. impressed with what they said. I think they were on Good Morning America or one of those morning shows and they were both very, both very articulate and well-spoken. And I, I, I think it was a really good example of how in a bad situation you can still handle it with, with dignity. I thought that was a really important thing to try to talk to, try, try to talk to our kids about, you know, cause I, I primarily have white students. I mean, we have maybe in our school total, we maybe have 15 to 20 African-American students, but I have two or three that I teach on the daily. So we talked a little bit about it and that, that was one of the things we tried to point out to them. Right. I think, you know, it just also shows that it's also really sad that, you know, those are things that we have to commend these men for, you know, for being arrested unjustly and that we have to commend them for, you know, keeping their composure in that type of situation. Um, but I think what I would also focus with my kids on is it's in, in the video that I saw their white friend was doing their best to speak and say, hey, these are my friends. They didn't do anything wrong rather than just look on from the sidelines. I think that um, their friend really tried to use their privilege as somebody who is white um, to try to advocate for them. And I hope that would also be a lesson that many people get from this as well. Yeah, absolutely. So I was I was on your website reading a little bit about some of the other stuff um, that you do besides, you know, uh, anti-bias. Um, could you talk a little bit about the role of education in, in closing what you call the opportunity gap? Yeah, so there's been, I know there's um, terminology about closing the achievement gap in schools. Um, I prefer the term the opportunity gap. Um, because I believe that the term opportunity gap really takes into account like unequal or inequitable distribution of resources and opportunities based on race, based on background, socioeconomic status, um, ableness, all of those uh, characteristics. Um, and that the role of education is really the place where ideally students should be able to come no matter what their background is, no matter how much money they have, no matter what language they speak. And have an experience that will eventually elevate all students to be in a place where, you know, like anything is possible. Um, I think that the goal is that someday we shouldn't be able to have indicators that will predict student success or graduation rates or, you know, prison cells based on reading scores, based on zip code or language or race or any of those things. Like that's what school should be. But unfortunately, the way that schools are segregated these days, the way that resources are not allocated equally or evenly um, is a huge um, block to that happening. But I think that this is a goal that we need to continue to strive for. So kind of on a follow-up to that, um, you know, I know the word equality is used a lot, Mm -hmm. like equality in education, but I noticed that you, you seem to use the word equitability more Mm -hmm. what is the difference between you know educational equality and educational equitability sure so equality refers to all people getting the same thing like the way that we would say equal when we're referring to mathematics like equal would be you know everybody gets one cookie or gets one of everything everybody gets the exact same amount um the term equity takes into consideration um the idea of being fair the idea that um, in some situations, people shouldn't actually all get the same thing. People really need to get what they need, rather. 
Um, and that the example that I give with my students is at our old site, we had an elevator and not everybody gets to use it. But if a student had, um, you know, sprained their ankle and were on crutches, then they would get to use the elevator. Does everyone get to use it? Is it equal? No. But is it fair? Yes, because that student needs that. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking of um, my my partner, Wilkie, always, uh, there's a, a cartoon where it's three kids with a bunch of boxes trying to look over a fence. And, you know, the first cartoon on equality is, you know, everybody's got two boxes, but they're different heights. Mm -hmm. So only one of the kids can see over the fence. And then the second cartoon is where the shortest kid gets three boxes, the the medium kid gets two boxes, and then the tall kid gets one, and then they can all see over the fence. And and I I just really love that analogy. But I think that's something that, I mean, it's been in the last couple of years that I've really understood the difference between equality and equity mm-hmm. and and just you know for more education educators and you know as new teachers come into the profession the more we use the word equity over equality I think the better off students students everywhere are going to be yeah actually I love that comic I'll have to I'll email you there's a newer version that shows the equity piece where the ground is actually sloped as well and the fence is sloped too um, to kind of represent the different places where people start off, you know, right. in our society. And then the last panel is justice, which is all of the kids tearing down the fence, which I really like. Oh, nice. Absolutely. That's awesome. So um, another thing that I, re- I really liked when I was, re- you know, reading some stuff on your website, um, could you talk about the importance of students, uh, not just having teachers, but having those teachers be their allies as well? Yes, absolutely. Like students need to know that teachers are on their sides and that we're here to advocate for, you know, their best interests, both academic and socially, emotionally, Um, that their teachers should be able to be there for them to support them if they're struggling in math or in reading and writing or if there's something that they just need to talk about. It's so important to know that you have people, you know, on your side. Um, I think sometimes in school when teachers and students engage in power struggles, it kind of seems like the teacher's like against you or out to get you. And that really tends to impact our students' view of school and learning. Um, I think oftentimes teachers really underestimate the amount of power that they wield. Um, Like I can think back to the math teacher who like broke my self-confidence in sixth grade and because of that experience, um, the way that she spoke to me um, and the way she made me feel about my mathematical abilities made me think that I was a really bad math student. And I kept that mentality for a very long time. And it really wasn't until I became a teacher where I started to think, actually, you know, I'm not that bad at math. And then it made me just think, man, was this this like self-fulfilling prophecy. I assumed I was bad at it. That's how I felt. And then that's how I performed. And obviously to this day, I'll never know if that was the case, but it's sad that that's where I'm at at this point in my life. Um, And I think that teachers have the power to make students love something forever or hate something for years to come. Um, And we need to really remember that when we work with our students and how we speak to them, we might not really think about um, on a day-to-day basis. Maybe you snap at your students, but 
your students will always remember how you made them feel, even if they don't remember like everything you said to them on any particular day. If you made them feel a certain way, that's how they're going to remember you. Um, and I think the feeling of being supported by a teacher is something that I've always carried with me, um, you know, in those fond memories of the teachers that I told you about earlier. And that's something we need to do for our students as well. Yeah, you know, I mean, and that's and that's such a good point. You know, teaching high school, I, I don't know how many conversations this year I've had with kids about how I, I really don't envy the position they're in because, you know, I grew up in a world that didn't have social media and really, really didn't have the internet. Like I graduated high school in 2003, you know, and we had the internet, but it wasn't like the end all be all that it is now. And there definitely wasn't social media and, and they just, you know, they just deal with so much more, you know, their world is so much more complicated with all the information. And I don't know how many conversations I have with kids about, you know, somebody said something about this or somebody did this on the, on Instagram or on Snapchat, you know, and they just are super stressed over it. And, you know, that's, it's really hard for them to, to lock in and focus on, on what's going on when they, you know, feel like they don't have support. And, and like the best example I can give is I have, you know, a regular study hall where kids just come in and, and, and are supposed to study. And I have like five or six of those kids that tell me I'm their favorite teacher and that I'm really the only teacher that, that listens to them and cares about them. Mm -hmm. And, and that, like, I feel so good about that, that I'm having an impact, but on the same token, it breaks my heart that that's the situation they're in, that a teacher that's not delivering them any content is their favorite teacher. Yeah. It's, it's a tough situation, but, but like you said, trying, trying to be an ally to the kids, I mean, is something that I really strive for. And I, and I think it's maybe one of, I mean, I think it's the most fun part of the job too, is, you know, when you're involved with them on, on a deeper level, it, like you said, it really makes a difference. And they asked me, our, you know, our high schoolers have prom this coming Saturday and they asked me if I would chaperone. So I, I, I really took that as a compliment that they would want me to be at, you know, what is one of their biggest events of their high school career. So that really That's meant awesome. a lot. That really meant a lot to me. So yeah, All the right. boys in my class asked if I would coach their kickball team. So actually <laughs> it was That's very awesome. moving. Like, Did you really? say yes? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just an I excuse. I was definitely like, uh, "Are you sure?" But sure. <laughs> oh man, just an excuse sad. to throw dodgeballs at or kickballs at kids. I would probably take it. So, <laughs> so yeah. So just trying to uh, trying to be respectful of your time. We really appreciate it. So going to try to wind her down here. So, what is what is the best advice? And it doesn't have to be education based. What's the best advice you've ever gotten? And who gave you that piece of advice? Oh, you know, it's actually advice that I've gotten from multiple places. Started with my dad and my parents when I was down to my principal a couple of years ago. Um, focus on what you can impact rather than the things that are outside of your control. Um, I think that is good advice for, you know, your social relationships, but it's also good advice for teaching. Um, it was the hardest teaching advice that I ever got because Obviously, you know, you're with your kids for a certain number of hours per day. And once they leave school at the end of the day, there's nothing you can really do about what they're going home to. 
if it's neglect or abuse or anything along those lines, you can show up for them every single day and let them know that you love them and that you care for them and you're here for them, but you can't change what they go home to. And that was something really, really hard for me that I'm still struggling with. Um, you know, there are kids who, if they needed something, I'd rather take them home with me because I know that I would, you know, treat them with respect and give them the things that they need, but I can't do all of those things. And even with, you know, challenging behaviors in the classroom, you know, if you've done your part, if you have worked with your students and understood where they're coming from, you have to focus on, you know, so many things. It's just really hard not to pour all of your energy into the things that you have no chance of winning. You know what I mean? Right. Right. Yeah. I, I've, had to learn that the hard way a time or two, but that's, that's really, that's really sound advice, both in life and in teaching. So what is, you'll burn out otherwise. (laughs) Oh, don't, don't, I know it, you know, trying to, trying to take on all, all your kids problems. It's just not, not a productive way to live, especially, you know, like you said, when so much of it is not your fault, like I'll happily take responsibility for the mistakes I make, but I can't take responsibility for, you know, the rest of the people that are in that kid's life. Yeah. So, all right. What would you say is your proudest accomplishment to date? My proudest accomplishment. I had, in school, outside of school, can I do two? (laughs) Yes, you can absolutely do two. Um, I have a student this year who... I would say that we got off on a very rocky start. He has a lot going on outside of the classroom. And he really, really tested my patience at the beginning of the year. Um, we have, I, I have worked on rebuilding our relationship quite a bit over the past few months. And he gave me a hug the other day and told me he loved me. And that like almost made me cry in front of a lot of children. Um, He's a different kid these days. I have coworkers who came up to me and they're like, um, your student just gave me a hug. Like, what's up? He would never have done that. Like, it's so out of character. They feel the need to come tell me about it. Right. Um, I would say like uh, outside of school, I'm really proud that I've published three pieces with Teaching Tolerance this year. One about working with students who are experiencing trauma outside of school one about leveraging the power of your privilege and we're in introducing those terms to students. And then I wrote into students after um, the March for Our Lives as well. So um, I'm just really pleased that this work has been resonating with people. Um, it makes me feel like I'm on the right path. That's awesome. Awesome. Okay. So um, what advice would you give to a struggling teacher? I mean, and I know that's super broad because, you know, teachers struggle in different ways. But, you know, an example of advice you would give to a struggling teacher. I would tell them to figure out something that they have a lot of passion for. And that's something that brings them a lot of joy and figure out a way to integrate it into their classroom teaching practice. Um if you can show something you love to your students, like that will easily show and carry over with your students. You know, if it's food or music or dance or, you know, just an interest in a particular culture or something like that, if you can share that with your kids, the energy in the room just shifts. 
I know on days where I get to teach like more explicit social justice lessons to the kids, I'm so excited to get out in the morning. I'm so excited to introduce new things to them. And I want to hear what they say. Like I'm genuinely fascinated by their perspectives because they see the world so differently than I do. Um, And those are the times that I'm happiest. And, you know, it's always great when you get a parent email or something, they're like, you know, my kid came home and they were talking about this and like, they were just so inspired by that conversation. Like they wanted to talk about at dinner. My kid never wants to talk at dinner. You know, those moments, you know, really make it worth it. So just find a part of yourself in your life that you love and try to bring it into the classroom so your kids can see that too. That's awesome. All right. So before I ask you the last question, uh, people listening, where, where can they best find you, connect with you and, and learn more about your work? Sure. Um, I post on my teacher Instagram page almost every day. It's at teach and transform, one word, um, on Instagram. And then my website is www.teachandtransform.org. Um, and on the website, you can see like more sense of portfolio pieces and articles. Um, and uh, you can get in touch with me either of those places. And I love talking to teachers from all over. It's one of my you know, one of the surprising things that came with starting uh, a social media presence is connecting with some amazing educators from all over the country, yourself included. Thank you. We appreciate it. But I mean, and that's the thing too, like I've had an Instagram for years, um, but you know, we're really just trying to get in, you know, start to grow in the community. And like you said, it's been so inspiring and and so supporting that I I wish I would have known it was there sooner because I think I could have you know, save myself a lot of pain of having to try to deal with things by myself. And, you know, my biggest challenge as a teacher and as a person is, is when I get into struggle, I, I tend to insulate and try to figure it all out on my own. But, you know, the, the Instagram teacher community is amazing. And, you know, there's so many people doing so many great things. And there's so many people talking about, yeah, there are days when teaching is, it's hard, and it's not fun. And you question why you do it. But, to have that community has been really exceptional. So awesome. Yeah. So we will, we will make sure to, to link those up and put them in the show notes. So that way everybody can find you. So our last question for you is what, what do you want your lasting legacy to be? Oh, that's such a hard question. <laughs> um, probably is very similarly along the lines of what I mentioned earlier for my kids who don't like school. I want them to think of the year this year with me as the year that changed their mind about learning. Um, I want my students to look back and think that, wow, Ms. Liz was the one who really saw me and she made an effort to understand who I was and she really valued our relationship and treated us with dignity. Um, you know, I, I always tell my students that once you're my student, you're always my student. And so I hope they always, you know, continue to remember that. I had a student who is now in sixth or seventh grade come back and visit like a week ago. And I taught him when he was in second grade. And just that was, you know, wonderful. I just hope they keep in touch. I want to be able to see all the amazing things they do when they grow up and the people they become. Yeah, I I feel you on that. I have my... So my first group is, I had my first group of seventh graders in 2009 and now they're sending me messages that they're getting ready to graduate college and a couple of them have kids and it's just (laughs) so crazy to think, you know, that they were, 
you know, seventh graders, you know, I guess it's now been almost 10 years. So I can believe that they're graduating college now, but, but that's been a, such a great moment. And gosh, Liz, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for coming on with us. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me again. It was great talking to you. Absolutely. And we will definitely link up uh, your uh, information in the show notes. And as always, if you want to get in touch with us, we are at value as value on Instagram, or you can find us at our website, uh, the LED project.com. Liz, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you.